Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on Tap, we have Soul, starring the voice talents of Jamie Foxx, Tina Fey, and Graham Norton. Written by Pete Doctor, Mike Jones, and Kemp Powers, and directed by Pete Doctor. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films, the film review podcast that reviews Pixar films this cask with fine spirits, our high wesk double rye whiskey. And we just finished watching In the Other Room from 2020, also released on Christmas Day, uh, Soul. You can stream it exclusively on Disney+. Plus. And they're doing a thing not like HBO Max where you don't have like a finite window to watch it. It's just kind of there now. Yeah. Which is pretty nice. But yeah, I, I think we can't wait to talk about this. But first, we got to document this bottle into the record book here, the High West Double Rye. I think we've both been pretty high on this particular bottle. But let's take a drink. Let's say what uh, the flavor po- pro- profile is and any... Any anecdotes we want to add? So cheers. Cheers, Jesse. Okay, I'm going to go with two. Okay. Pepper, caramel. Where's that vanilla? Hold on, let me go one more no, time. No, that's, that's what I taste. Vanilla? Mm-hmm. I get caramel on that. Maybe it's just because it's the color, but I'm there with caramel. Definitely sweet. Like I said, I've said this all the last three weeks, definitely on the sweeter side of a rye for me. You know what I love about it? I love how you go immediately on the palate sweet, and then a second later, the alcohol Mm -hmm. and the heat and the pepper, that, that spice kicks in. That's such a unique transition so rapidly. How would you rate and grade this bottle? Rock gut to top shelf. Um, that's probably call, call plus. Yeah. I, it's not the, it's, n- well, it's not the best gentler rye, yeah. but a really good rye. Yeah. That's what that's, that's what I think. And as we said last week, a good like starter rye. So where are you going to go? Yeah. I'm kind of probably in that middle, but for $36, I mean, this is, it's not an inexpensive bottle to get for a really nice drink. And then there's something just about you get extra points high West because of your bottle. Just or, looks like it should be good, doesn't it? Looks like John Ford should be like drinking from the bottle. He did a lot, actually. <laughs> John Ford was known to drink a lot from the bottle. <laughs> Him and Sam Beckenbaugh. Yeah. Awesome. I'm going to have Great. to send you, maybe I'll find that story that I have. Oh, yeah. The night that um, Bogdanovich, I believe it is, saved John Ford's life. Peter Bogdanovich is like the most fascinating man. Like he's got a lot of great stories. You know what we're never going to do though? What? We're never going to go to Mexico with Peter Bogdanovich and Jeff Goldblum because I guarantee you those Lotharios will have us in jail in a quick minute. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's go ahead and get this started with our flight question.
quartet jazz is some of my favorite type of jazz, just small combo pieces versus like a whole big band. Uh, I love it. I loved a lot of the jazz uh, pieces in this particular film. But here on Rice Smile Films, uh, often our flight question, Matt and I love to do rankings, lists, countdowns of all sorts of things, but we've been kind of beating around the bush a little bit uh, through all these episodes, so let's just go ahead and do it. Our top three favorite Pixar films from three to one. Number three. Has made the list in each of the previous two weeks at but, number three. What is it? Bugs Life. <laughs> Bugs, I was just going to say. It had to be. Yeah. What a hypocrite I would be to not have that in here. If it checked those two boxes. Yeah, Bugs Life was like number one here, number one there. It's not on my list. Can't do that. Yeah. So you'd revoke my Rye membership privileges. Good, good choice. Like, no, I'm really glad you have been bringing up Bugs Life because it's often the forgotten Pixar film. Well, that's all the way back in uh, like 96, I believe. It was film two. Right. So they mm -hmm. were still figuring it out. They have such a large volume of work that I think that one gets lost in the shuffle, but not this week or last week or the previous week. We've remembered it. Not enough to do a show on it, but it got mentioned. <laughs> yeah, maybe, uh, maybe in the future we could talk about all that economics. Number three, swing away, Casey. We covered it last week. It's Coco. Uh, I think it wasn't until last week's viewing and the experience I had and just kind of the reflection into that story that it really kind of it closer to home for me. Mm -hmm. So yeah, go back and listen to last week's episode, but we got in deep with a lot of familial stuff in that episode. That's my number three. It's beautiful film, as we've said, fun story, and it's probably going to come up in this week's episode as well. Yes, it is. And that's also going to be my number two. I want to say that there was points in last week's show. I was a little bit hard on that film. This is odd, but I meant that in the most positive way. That film, short of, like, again, not to rehash the whole show, but the issues I struggled with with some of the whining mm -hmm. is not far from being epic. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. <laughs> it's a sure. weird way to put it, but... Oh, I know what you mean. To being in that category of... And no animated film has any place in there for me like that. Yeah. So it's going to be number two. We like that uh, region and that geography. It's familiar to us. We like the familial pieces. So yeah, I'm going to check in at number two with Coco. Awesome. Number two for you. One film from this particular series had to make it on my list, and it's my favorite of the series. It's the one I think is the best, and that's Toy Story. Hold your breath. Three. <laughs> I knew it. Uh to me, that's just uh, nothing against Toy Story 4 and kind of how that film plays out. But to me, part three is uh, like the perfect ending to a trilogy. It's the equivalent of a last crusade to an Indian father right off into the sunset. The same thing, the parting of your original owner onto the next owner and the kind of acceptance and goodbyes that have to take place with that. And as you kind of stated, I think in the uh, Onward episode, the gang warfare at play in the daycare with Watso Huggin Bear. Like, there's a lot of really good stuff in there. Michael Keaton is the Ken doll, gets extra points in that film. Uh, it's my favorite of the Pixar films. It's very poignant, it's very funny, and it's very thematic. I don't disagree with any of that. Mm. I, you couldn't have said it better, so I'll just leave it there. Excellent. Number one, huh? Brave. I can't say that I'm a huge fan of the princess phenomenon in any Pixar slash Disney film. It's a bit overdone. And although I like them the same, doesn't mean I dislike them either. She's really unique. Mm -hmm. Merida's really, really unique. And in a strange way, when we talked about this 
off mic the way that I think I'm sickly interested in WandaVision because it feels a little Stepford Wives and a little eerie. Yeah. Brave offers a little bit of that for me too. What's coming, what Merit is going to do to her mother, what the final implications of that are, how they don't really walk it back. And then of all the colors that I didn't think I liked in Pixar films, I thought green would be at that list. But I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love how lush that film is. As strange as this sounds, I feel hydrated when that movie is over like like filled like volumized and it's a good story and i can watch it over and over and i'm gonna go with brave although it's close between that and another one but that other one's not even gonna make the list yeah but be an honorable mention here when we come back to it after you give me your number one okay you know my number one i've spoken very highly of it uh all of these films it's the first incredibles film uh it was one of those ones like you know i took my drug my parents to see and I was kind of getting to that age where I wasn't seeking out animated films as much I'm getting a little older I think I'm in like middle school around that age and I didn't kind of know what to expect but there was nothing else playing so I was like may as well you know what I mean Mm -hmm. uh and just thoroughly just blown away by the entire experience as I said it's superhero it's a spy film it's Watchmen it's the Fantastic Four Fantastic Score yeah Michael uh uh, Gaiachino, who's kind of a staple in the in the Pixar, he actually did the score for for Coco last week. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, amazing just experience all around. Uh, and it, it it was it was nice to see them tackle a superhero genre film. And like you said, well, we said every week, spec screenplay. I mean, they just made up those characters and made them interesting. And that's just something they're all around really good at doing. Love it. Great choice. What's your honorable mention? I'm curious. It's going to be different one that we haven't spoken. Okay. I don't know if this is even anywhere in your periphery, okay. but it's actually Monsters U. Okay. I think the Monsters universe in itself is very smart. Mm-hmm. And what energy consists of in that film and what that means and what you have to put the energy people or the energy, <laughs> what you have to harvest the energy from and how. Mm-hmm. is kind of innately fucked up if you get right down to it. Fear, right? Yeah. I know that changes later on. Uh, the college setting is something that I think Pixar does really well, and we're going to get to this later, I hope, in the in the nightcap. Mm-hmm. They find really great settings and present them in very interesting ways, which are two essential pieces to spec screenplays, and it goes to what you just said, why they're so good at it. So Monsters you for me. Good choice. You want an honorable mention? Toy Stories 1 and 2, It's they're, okay. they're very interchangeable in, in my lineup. I think they're all, that's just a really solid trilogy. Uh, for myself i like the first monsters inc i think that one's uh pretty well done and uh oh what was there there, there was one other ratatouille yeah Dory, Nemo. yeah, yeah i like yeah, those ones those ones as well uh but yeah that's my that's my list it's uh those are the ones i come back to the most often can i just give you one more quick question yeah give me your worst <laughs> least favorite the least favorite of the ones that I've seen, because there's, um, like I said, I haven't even seen like Cars 3. I've only seen a portion of Cars 2, and I've only seen Cars 1, but in Spanish. So, like, I haven't even gotten the full thing just because it's so uninteresting to me. We went over that last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one that just didn't do it for me is actually The Good Dinosaur. Uh, oh. 
it's just kind of, it's snuck in there and it's, it's, I saw it to see it and have never gone back to it, uh, fairly. And it has its fans out there, but just uninteresting to me. And that's kind of what some of Pixar boils down to for me. Yeah, I'm going to go with Wally. Can't come as any surprise to you. I hate the AI trying to find sentience sort of bit. That's kind of what that movie is <laughs> in an apocalyptic future yeah. with sloth like humans. Mm-hmm. I hate it. Terrible film sucks. That's my number one worst. Yeah. Fuck that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and dive right in and let's get into the nitty gritty with Soul. <laughs> hang on, hang on. What are y'all laughing at? So Connie got a little lost in it. That's a good thing. Look, I remember one time my dad took me to this jazz club, and that's the last place I wanted to be. But then I see this guy, and he's playing his chords with voice on it. And then with a minor, I went, oh, 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 Then he has the inner voices, and it's like he's, it's like he's singing. And I swear the next thing I know, it, it, it's like he floats off the stage. That guy was lost in the music. He was in it, and he took the rest of us with him. I wanted to learn how to talk like that. That's when I knew. So Dis or Disney Pixar's Soul might actually have the best Disney music pre-title sequence, which is some beginning jazz band's rendition of the. When you wish upon a star, the whole Disney moniker thing, it's almost sight-splittingly laughter because that's what bands sound like sometimes, just so bad. Especially middle school, just learning how to play. It's just out of tune. They're playing, you know, notes that aren't even on the note chart. They're they're just kind of just, uh, you know, blowing through it. And then we get to, you know, where the source of this sound is coming th- from, and that's Joe Gardner's uh, jazz class. He's this part-time... Uh, music teacher here in um, in New York City. And he's got a real big problem that like all of his students could give two licks about being in this class. I always like that, the, the trumpet guy who's, who's slurping up Skittles with his trumpet bell. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they, they, they couldn't care less to be there. And he's really trying to get them to experience, and this is kind of where the title comes in in, in handy, the soul of music what it means to really get into the groove and the jive of playing music, especially jazz. One of the things that really helps move a movie along is the way that you introduce the main character. And Mm -hmm. if you can introduce them in the setting that they're going to play with clear conflict present, then you start to create a larger buy-in for the audience immediately. And this movie does that very well. Mm -hmm. Here's a guy that loves jazz and essentially is trapped in a world with awful jazz performed by people that mostly don't care about it. And when he does get the brief moment of something that resembles the possible showcasing of any talent, it's disregarded by everybody else around them. So then he defends that talent, which is Connie, right? Mm -hmm. Only to have everybody else just laugh him off and then have that, beautiful soliloquy which is him bearing his soul to his students interrupted 
by the administrator at the high school he's at, mm-hmm. formally giving him full-time employment, yeah. which feels not celebratory, but more like a prison Like sentence. a ball and chain. Yeah, that's exactly what mm-hmm. it seems like because Joe has loftier goals of you know, playing in these jazz quartets in New York City. And New York City is just such like a perfect background for a story like this of all the just underground jazz clubs that exist how pertinent that well look at whiplash terrence fletcher playing in a jazz club yep uh probably called the blue note yeah and he uh really wants to to cut so that's like the dream in order to fuel the dream he has to you know put some bread and you know money on the table that's what you know the job's doing but you can even kind of see you know how much he struggles with it I can imagine seeing that struggle if, you know, your students aren't even meeting you halfway. Well, not only are they not good, they don't care about it. Mm -hmm. And it's something that is as essential to him as oxygen. Mm -hmm. So to face that every day, which is these people that don't give a rip about what your life is built upon and then performing it awfully with not really much intention of ever getting any better, you have to feel bad for Joe. Oh, yeah. Here's the thing, though. It'd be really easy to make him a bitter character. They don't, and that's what I really also like about this. Mm -hmm. They make him a dreamer and ambitious and a pursuer and not a self-wallowing, self-loathing pity party because we're going to get that with 22, aren't we? Do you uh, you like Jamie Foxx as the voice of this character? Perfect. Yeah, great choice. Yeah. Fantastic choice. He's not talking. He's like, a world without Spider-Man. This is a different voice for him. This fits this movie better. <laughs> yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about that. That's a really good point. Yeah. As bad as he is as Electro, it's just as how good he is as Joe Gardner. Yeah. No, I think he's a, a great actor in the in the right role. There's a lot of things wrong with the amazing Spider-Man, too. <laughs> not just him. <laughs> and it mostly starts with fade in. Yeah. <laughs> Spider-Blood. Anyway, yeah. uh, back to New York City and... You know, he's got adversaries and barriers, you know, anywhere he looks, you know, whether it's being slapped with a, you know, full-term teaching job and then he goes to mom and then there's mom just kind of weighing the dreams down even more, who's always been against it from, it seems like minute one. And when are you going to get a good job with a pension and this and that? Um, Why are you going to, you know, keep up with this charade of trying to make it in this, this world? But as we learn from Joe, you know, he's so passionate about what he does. He's willing to live feebly and struggle in order to achieve his dream. You know, that's an, that's an admirable, you know, trait for him to have, but it's gotta be demoralizing, you know, when, you know, parents can't meet you halfway, at least offer support. There's an ideology in this film that also happened last week in Coco that I want to take a minute just and appreciate. Oh. If you're the mom who's had to raise the kid because dad left and there's been a struggle, I don't think there's any shortage of that story on the silver screen. Like, that's everywhere. What last week and this week both ultimately get to is, despite that, and despite your dad's efforts or family's efforts and failed efforts in music, and mom championing the cause when dad is gone, what they still present instead of bitter and angry and hating all things male is a woman who's still supportive and loving and forgiving and also appreciates the commitment that she made to allow the male pursuant to chase that dream. 
it's easy to go that other way. And it's really off-putting to me. So it might just be personal, but okay, this is pretty much a personal account every week. So why should that change now? Mm -hmm. And in both Coco and Soul, we're going to get to it later when we get to that. We understand exactly why mom or grandma and great-grandma or great-granddaughter are the way they are. Mm -hmm. And it's done really well. It's not hateable. Oh, yeah. Let's not make it hate. Let's make it a little bit of failed realization of the ultimate goal, but there was still good along the way. And I'm doing this because I just don't want you to make quite the same mistake, but I'm not going to be a bitch about it. Yeah. And it instills doubt. It's like a, it's like a resistance band. Like when you're exercising, it's something holding you back. Well said. I mean, you could be all in and fully pursue it. I mean, if you had the full backing of your parental units, that's it. Yeah. Go, go be an athlete or go be a musician or a filmmaker or whatever you would have that much more confidence to do it. But there's something when the authoritative figures in the family say, don't do that, that it kind of knocks you down a couple pegs. You know what I mean? I do. And what I love about your resistance <clears throat> band metaphor is the ultimate result of that is strength and not hatred. Mm-hmm. And I think both of those ideas portrayed strength yeah, and genuine love, concern, but parental concern love in either of those cases. And I just want to say to that, yeah, Thank you, Pixar. Well, that's like a Disney thing. Like Disney, since like Snow White and all the way back to like, like Disney has issues with parents. Especially male. They suck mostly. Yeah. Or the the the, the mothers are non-existent. Like Bambi's mother. Like <laughs> the, 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 the mother figure is just not even in the picture. Yeah. I wonder what that's like. I've never dived too much into Walt Disney's, you know, parental history, but there's something there you know what i mean yeah psychologically <laughs> but you know joe's got a great opportunity that's just kind of laid at his at his at his at his feet and that's one of his former students who just idolized him is actually living the dream that joe wants and is like hey teach the only reason i went to school was to go take your class you know that i loved it that much and you know we need a, a pianist uh, for this quartet you know come down play and it's actually someone he idolizes uh, dorothea williams this saxophone um <laughs> uh, proficient legend. yeah legend in like the, the jazz scene here so this is like a, a two birds with one stone for him i get to play in uh, like a combo piece i've always wanted to do that but then it's for someone i absolutely idolize um is this hector de la cruz yeah <laughs> yeah not qu- maybe not quite not murderous but he gets that opportunity and then just slays it you know what i mean like to me when s- the word soul gets uttered in this film and we get to the literal meaning of why the film's called that. To me, I like when it explores the space of the soul of music. And I love that they picked jazz as the subgenre to dive into because when you get lost in, especially something as improvisational as jazz, I mean, you're literally when your brain thinks of how to move your finger down, you're making up the music as you go along. You know what I mean? It hasn't been predetermined until you decide what to do. That's that's the soul of music. You know what I mean? Like you feel how it needs to sound. And I think the film captures that nicely in this kind of like purple and like blue hues. Like they envelop Joe and we find out what that is. It's like the creative space of all people. I've never been able to figure out what it is about purple and blue and why that is so appropriate with jazz. But man, does it work? Red a little bit also, but yeah. that's also purple and blue and red, right? They're kind of all in the same spectrum or house of the same ultimate purple color. Mm-hmm. When Joe 
gets his audition with Dortha, Dorothy, Dorothea, Dorothea. Sorry. He lets it go and gets caught up in that same moment where he just feels it and rides it. And the blue background behind it just fits. And whether it's what maybe doesn't happen except for Fletcher's solo when he's in that jazz club in Whiplash or pretty much the entirety of Mobetta Blues, mm-hmm. which oh, we have to do that movie someday, Jesse. Mm-hmm. It just seems to work. I, I don't know why blue fits that. Green wouldn't. No. <laughs> If it's fast and hot, then I can see the where the red works also. But that blue, look, kind of blue by Miles Davis. The and I don't mean blue like sad. Like I'm not on that, not that on the nose with it. It just feels like blue. And so I, I don't know if there's a whole tangential discussion we want to have about the color blue as it relates to jazz. Well, but j- it just seems to work. Jazz is cool. Jazz is yeah. Is is. I don't want to say cold. That's not the, the the word I'm looking for, but like cool. It's cool color temperatures uh, that exist within that because jazz is a is a cool genre of music. It's it's not something that you headbang to. You know what I mean? It's it's a different style, and that color palette fits that. It's weird though, too. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Except when it's not, and then when they let it go, and then it's not blue, and then it's bright red also. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, the color palette that the film chooses to use seems to fit too because essentially where we get to when we get to the other, one of the other multiple versions of the use of the word soul pre and post afterlife, it's also kind of blue, isn't it? Well, let's get right to that. So Joe nails the gig. Mm-hmm. Be here at seven for rehearsal and you better come in a in a, in a suit, get a suit. And get a suit. he's just ecstatic. But then something happens. Joe dies. <laughs> Joe, Joe Gardner, look, I'm not supposed to be here. Ah, must have been sudden for you. You see, Joe, I'm 106 years old. Been waiting a long time for this. For what? The great beyond. The great beyond? So the great beyond is like this David Lynchian like wormhole that sends you up to the afterlife. Like how we just threw in there that, oh, and then Joe died. (laughs) Just falls down a manhole and ends up in this space, this gray gray space, yeah, uh, of uh, what's literally a stairway. I don't want to say stairway to heaven, but that's kind of what it is, is an escalator escalator. uh, to to heaven. Or, you know, here's what I do like about the film is, you know, believe in what you want. Christianity, Buddhism, and like whatever, wake up... Mormon, <laughs> whatever floats your boat. I like that this film doesn't pigeonhole it, itself into like heaven. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or like a term. It's so generalized with what this is. This is whatever you want to believe in the afterlife, the space where souls, you know, begin and end. Smartly done too, because when they leave the escalator to some state of collective consciousness, it's done as the spark of energy dissipating. 
to something else. Mm -hmm. So energy never ceases, right? It just changes form. Yeah. And this leaves enough space to, I think, be welcoming for all people and all beliefs about what is pre-post and otherwise. Yeah. Because you finish that escalator trip and your little blip just with one final grand spark of life, the soul is exhausted to something else. We don't know what the something else is, and I'm glad they don't tackle that. Just leave it where it is. Because yeah. it. I don't care. It doesn't matter. And it's not going to leave me. Well, that's not my version of heaven. Or it, it just, It's really smartly handled in a space that's pretty delicate if you get down to it. Just really quick, we don't have to go on a whole soliloquy with this but have you ever like thought about that like yes a like, lot like what happens like yes because i do think about the conscious as an existing thing and when life the brain and the heart start pumping you know what happens to that and go whichever road you want to go down but I mean, you could go insane thinking about something like that okay so i think what we're about to talk about because i'm going to jump into this now mm-hmm is I think a lot of the space that makes this film successful. Mm -hmm. So you asked me, have I thought about it to the point to where there's been a few times where it's actually petrified me to the point to where I had to actually get out of my own head. Yeah, you almost have to stop thinking about that idea. So I'm going to use this example as my best attempt to try to square Mm -hmm. what's the unknown in me, and that's my fascination with another genre of film. Yeah. Horror. Yeah. It gives me a chance through the fourth wall to practice what is inevitably coming when I lay down my working tools, mm-hmm. go to that hand that hands had not made yeah. forever in the heavens. That's Mason's and I am one for everybody. That's where the hell's that coming from? Um, you don't know. And I don't believe, cause I've never seen it, that there's going to be the opportunity to come back and say, Hey Jesse, it's Matt. And this is actually what happens. Cause I'd be the, you'd, I'd come back and tell you immediately. <laughs> yeah. It's never happened. So maybe it does, but I haven't experienced it. So you go through it finally, ultimately by yourself. And then the rest of the knowledge mm-hmm. goes with you. Yeah. And there is a peacefulness and a finality in that, that offers some solace, but there's also a whole lot of what if, and rudely or crudely put uh uh-oh to get to that yeah man we start going down but okay you how we brought it up in a pixar film this is that where they work right sure obviously you've thought about it too or you wouldn't have brought it up yeah does this movie for you Mm -hmm. play in a space that pushes it a little bit too much that might compromise a children's level of understanding and maybe become a little bit sort of scary? Uh, Probably not because much like last week's film, I think it tackles the subject of death very lightly and very well. My thoughts. In a very age appropriate way. Um, Because this land that we end up in the great before, which is where souls get their personality before they make the leap to earth to go into whatever vessel they go into. Uh, It's as we said, uh, it's very cute. It's very, there's nothing scary about it. It's not, <laughs> this part isn't David Lynchy. It's very, it's very Pixar. It's on brand. It's colorful. It's pastel. Um, as I kind of, we kind of said after the fact, it's almost a little too cute for me. There's something about little bouncing globules of goo uh, in a pastel 
uh, sky blue and uh, lilac purple environment that's a little too much for me. Uh, and it's just because I'm not of the age that that's for. I mean, I'm more interested in the escalator to nothing. What? Well, like, what's that? That mystery. But I think the film handles it well without scaring the kids with that question, so to speak. If anything, it kind of brings peace to them uh, of thinking of what life looks like before and after. I mean, it, it, I think that's handled really well. The other thing it handles really well is it takes the concept of the soul and the spark of life, which whether it's your take as science or your take of divine intervention or wherever you fit on the spectrum of how life began from all the readings that I've done, the yet the, the thing that science and metaphysics and physics and the supernatural and secular and non-secular thought have ever been able to decode is what's the engine that starts the spark. Yeah. So we're talking about the spark of life and trying to address that in relationship to the soul is an infinitely impossible task to do, but yet the movie does it. I'll agree with you completely a little bit cute and a little bit pastelly, but in a way that's probably the only way that not only kids could get it, also you and I might be able to get it because that's impossible to understand. Yeah. So the spark. Well, that's an actual term in this movie. Right. Yeah. Which is what kickstarts our motor and gives us the functional electrical capacity capacities to have life, mitosis, and all of the things that occur in our body. Mm-hmm begins when you find the thing that incentivizes or motivates you. And that's rather beautiful and simple, but it's pretty pastel you're right. <laughs> it's pretty pastel So, like, Joe's in an interesting middle ground right now because he's not going to the great beyond. He's stuck in the great before. So the people that are here are relegated to, like, a mentorship role of helping these new young souls find their spark find how they're going to exist on the plane of earth now this is where we're introduced to number soul number 22 and this is interesting to me because the stringily leader of the seminar uh creature says that uh the first one up is like number one billion one million three hundred and things so they're at that number and here's number 22 22 that it hasn't figured it out like this is like (laughs) In like the beginning times, like <laughs> has been around for a little bit, and has had some great mentors from Lincoln to Mother Teresa, and she just can't get it together, and is having a problem finding her purpose uh, in in what she needs to do, uh, and so thus begins kind of a, a mentorship type of role, which is what this film kind of ends up becoming, which is not what I thought the film was going to be about, and I kind of think they handled that all right too. Yeah. Every one of the mentors with 22, and like you said, the list is notable, Mm -hmm. has failed. And each one of the mentors is remembered in history as a significant figure, whether it be humanitarian efforts or politics or what it might be. Well, there was a great scene in like 22's like box shack of all Mm -hmm. the name tags on the wall. Mm -hmm. And I tried to look at, um, you know, what a couple of them were. And I, the only one I picked out, I just singled in on it, but I'd love to go back and just pause. But one was like Johnny Cash was another one. It's awesome. So... Great, some great mentors through time. And none of them have taken. So what chance does middle school, failed jazz musician, struggling jazz musician, teacher, part-time teacher until mm-hmm. recently. Part-time. Um, 
have to find that spark? None. Gets to the larger context, I think, of the film. Mm -hmm. And that's in these grand pursuits that I think we all design life to be successful and rated as successful from. What's mostly forgotten is the journey. Yeah. And I have a whole little bit to like a story I want to do later. And then a general thought about what success for me has meant and not meant and how I try to measure that. But maybe Mm -hmm. Joe has the thing that none of those other people had, but here's what's crazy about it. Mm -hmm. 22 is going to help Joe find the thing as much as Joe's going to give 22 the thing. And I literally mean physically give 22 the thing. Yeah. So you have in a weird sense, a buddy movie, and maybe we get to the crux of the film this movie is about. This movie is about what is your thing. And Joe's thing is making him, albeit a bit selfish at this point. I mean, he just wants to sell use, it. He just wants to use it as a gateway to get back to his body in the sewer because he's got a gig at seven, and he's got to be there for it no matter what. Because he's certain that that gig at seven is going to justify all of the hours and days and failures and roller coaster rides and the tireless pursuit of what he thought success was going to be. Let's just do it right now because I wanted to say this. Go ahead. Here's what I've come to know about success. If you're rolling your eyes, I apologize. Rarely does it look like what you thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, it's kind of close, much better, and not at all what you thought. But you know what is going to be the same thing in everyone's version to whatever success is? Mm -hmm. The journey. Yeah. And if success is the top of some mountaintop, that's a long and arduous climb, appreciate the steps. Yeah. The mountain's not going to look like what you thought it was going to look like at the top for most of us, most of the time. Mm-hmm. So by God, yeah, enjoy the climb. Yeah. Well, your life's all about the journey. And that's kind of, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but that's what Joe ended up realizing at the end of the movie. Right. Uh, but there's a couple cool things that happen. I mean, this 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 world as cutie and Teletubbies as it is, there's some cool stuff going on here. And one is what we said is the creative space with when when you get in the, the zone, it, this is where your astral plane like goes to exist. This is the best joke in the entire movie. What is this place? You know how when you humans are really into something and it feels like you're in another place? It feels like you're in the zone, right? Yeah. Well, this is the zone. It's the space between the physical and spiritual. Wait a minute. I was here today doing my audition. This must be where musicians come when they get into a flow. Not just musicians. Watch this. Oh, Rune, Rune, where for Arthur? Line! Oops. Check this out. I have been messing with this team for decades. And the Knicks lose another one. All right, all right. A genius. How the Knicks allowed them to just trash them like that is, it's the best joke in the movie because for those of you that don't follow Knicks basketball, they've been trashed for coming up on like three decades. (laughs) It's been a long time since Jeremy Lin made them relevant for about a, a month, half a not season. even two weeks. Right, they've had one playoff run. I laughed so hard the first time I saw that. I was just like, "That is just such a burn on another level." And kudos to Pixar for that for sneaking that in there. I love it. I think it's yeah, you're right. That it's, ain't for the kids. Kids ain't watching Knicks basketball. They don't care about the Knicks. No, yeah. But the Knicks are all over the place on the subway and in the hats. So we see the Knicks all over this film. Well, that's well. Let's just kind of get to that too because okay. last week we were. All up in arms about, in a good way, 
how great the land of the dead is in Coco. It's so unique looking from the transportation to their TSA to the color palette. Yeah, Xan- Xanadu, um, mm-hmm. Hector's, uh, oh no, Ernesto's palace. Mm-hmm. You want to spend as much time here as possible. I mean, you can't like, you want more and more of it. And in this film, it's the exact opposite. I mean, they established New York and New York exists within this space already as this living, breathing, cultural, just zeitgeist. And you want to be there more than you do in the great before. So your fictional world that is the crux of your film, where all souls are created and then have to find their place, is less interesting than the subway in New York. I think we're both in complete agreement on that. So this is going to work against the film. Mm -hmm. New York full of all of the vibrant colors of city and zeitgeist, and you can smell the rats and the pollution and the pizza and all of the things that are beautiful noise personified by Neil Diamond, right? is far more interesting than the pastels of figuring out what the personality of the soul is going to consist of or the vast void of nothingness that is the voyage to, I guess, the afterlife. Mm -hmm. We don't spend enough time there. And so what I'm going to do, and I think you're probably with me here, is I start to get a little bit weary because I just want to get him back to New York. Mm-hmm. And also, I think you and I might be a little bit of a different audience here because we both really appreciate jazz. Yeah. So I want to see this guy perform. Mm-hmm. It's a long road to watch him get back to that. And mostly you really don't get back to that except for 45 seconds, maybe. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that other stuff can't work. It's just I'm not sure that the soul world that we see the soul of Joe existing in is more interesting than New York. And I want to say one other thing about this. I get it. And I get the fish out of water and it's a common trope in film and it, it needs to be done and it works mostly. When Joe comes back, he comes back to the mortal coil with 22 in tow. And we get a Freaky Friday-like thing where 22 gets to be in Joe's body and Joe gets to take on a cat. That is so limiting in some ways to what the character can do. do. It works in the film. Mm -hmm. The movie doesn't suffer from that. It's just personal. But that's not the story I want. I want Joe back in his body as Joe and watching him try to reclaim the position that maybe he had lost because he was not there for the show there's other ways that could have gone. Like, it still works. I'm not saying it doesn't work. No, yeah, I know what you mean. It's just selfishly not. And they didn't make this for me, but it's not what I want. Well, it ain't a goofy kids movie without some animal antics. No, I know. Yeah, yeah, so that's kind of, it gets a little too silly in the, the Freaky Friday aspect of it. But it does get us back to New York because this thing's a living, breathing jazz soundtrack, you know, uh, beat to to what the what the what the film really exceeds at for, for myself. I mean that that scene. It, it's a great scene because you know we've kind of already established in the soul world. You can't eat, you can't smell, you can't taste. You're just a glob. You're just <laughs> this is little orb here. And when they're in the streets of New York, I mean, like 
I can imagine, you know, what that place, you know, smells like. But when Joe go, Cat Joe goes and gets a slice of a New York slice, so it's my favorite slice of pizza, and gives it to to Joe, who's like, I, I hate this place already. Uh, Twenty two, Joe. There's that little sequence there. Where he's dragging the pizza, and there's a rat dragging its pizza, and they have like a moment, like, "You gonna eat me? <laughs> Don't eat my pizza! Don't eat me!" But then. We see, you know, even that aspect come to life, the cu- the cuisine aspect of, you know, what this city means to Joe and what it's going to mean for 22 that, you know, I actually do like living in this kind of space. What you're showing me is it's less ethereal and less uh, philosophical. You know, when you have a, a mentor like Copernicus, Boar City, <laughs> I'm just going to say, like, I would like to have a mentor like Joe, because like what you said, at, at the end of the day, you enjoy the journey. And that's what Joe's lesson is going to be. You just have to learn how to live and then kind of take uh, solace in the simple things. And I think that's what they do here in this sequence of the film. I love that to the Copernicus thing real quick. Mm-hmm. What I think is really smart and probably lost on just about every youth this Copernicus and the heliocentric theory. And then how that relates to what 22 can't be in that Mm -hmm. space. It's really smart because that battle between God and science and what that did and meant to Copernicus and how contra like it's all playing in a very, very heady, smart, Mm -hmm. aware of itself space. As I was watching 22's return or I guess uh, birth on earth and Joe's return to earth in Mr. Mittens, the cat, I kept thinking about Joe Black. Oh, with Brad Pitt? I know a lot of people don't like that film. I actually really do like that film. I don't like how long it is. <laughs> it's a bit, yeah, no fair. <laughs> it's like three hours. And like the promise that Claire Forlani had that oh, never Claire was Forl- actualized. Wow, I can't believe we <laughs> brought up she Claire made Forlani. To Claire Forlani, I <laughs> Excellent. Guess. Whether it's that or dispatches from elsewhere or to a certain degree, um, you know, Stuart and Angel Clarence and all of that. Yeah. Um, AI in a shitty way, but to a certain extent, even Blade Runner mm-hmm. with the idea of more human than human. This exploration of what it means to be human is, I think, a really cool concept. Yeah. And is handled really well. Again, a kid's movie, and you're right. We want to kind of cutes it up to not make it so grim. An adult movie. Because if it goes, then it's an adult, an adult movie. I'd love to see David Lynch make this movie. <laughs> well, I think he has. Like, right? I mean, isn't it called Mulholland Drive? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, because you actually, literally, you just took what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I can say without some question in my own beliefs, as much as I don't like pastel colors and the soft soul world, I also don't know if, I appreciate the way David Lynch handles it either. So as much as I can complain about, well, he shouldn't be a cat, maybe maybe it would be a dog and I'd like it better because mm-hmm. I hate cats, but yeah. I'm devil's advocating myself here. I will say this. It's certainly thought-provoking, and to that, I think it's what Pixar for the last three weeks for you and I have shown an excellence or an expertise in doing. Did you like the scene in the... In the barbershop? I think, how can I say this? Yeah. Um, I love that the barber that's cutting his hair has never been bothered to give his side of the story. Mm-hmm. 
That's a really smart way to go about that. Well, it's he kind of meets Joe in, in the middle a bit when, when he starts talking with him, and he was like, you were born, you were put on this planet to, you jumped, your little glob jumped into Earth, and you were put here to cut hair. And he's like, I never really wanted to cut hair. I only did this because my daughter got sick and I had to get a job, yeah. and it was cheaper than veterinary school. <laughs> yeah. So you call that settling, but then you you find acceptance in what that brings to you. And for uh, a barbershop-like atmosphere, especially here in New York, mm -hmm. the amount of stories and culture that you can hear just by cutting and giving someone a hot shave is better than like the money that a veterinary school would bring you. You know what I mean? Again, the lesson of the film, accept the journey. There's a big moment in there where... 22 in Joe's body with Joe as Mr. Mitten sitting on his own lap. There's some line delivered like, well, man, I'm sorry it didn't work out for you. And the bar, the barber says, whoa, what do you mean it didn't work out for me? This is back to success. Isn't the way I set out, but it's still been pretty darn good. Like, don't you put that on me. I'm really happy with what I do. Mm -hmm. And so the takeaway from all this, there's some moments of levity and we get 22, um, extolling the virtues of the afterlife to a very, very eager audience in the barbershop. Mm -hmm. That's all fun to watch and unique. Joe's getting told about how maybe his reckless pursuits in this have been a little bit misguided because while you've been endeavoring to get this one thing, you've missed all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. So Joe's getting a first class schooling here on what it means to live your life yeah. as the cat. And that's really smart. Yeah. I think that's pretty, pretty well done. Yeah. yeah when, when you exist in this space, when you're confronting, you know, those things that have been barriers for you and he's going to approach another one here with, with mom, I think the film excels in, in that space. I want more of this and less of bouncing globs. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's just like, I'm 30 plus years old. You know, like I'm, I'm not going to watch movies for that kind of cutesy thing. I, I get it. I know why it's there, but when I want Pixar to be on, like I want them exploring these types of things. Mom, I know we've had some rough times, but you're right. I can't be truthful with you because it seems like no matter what I do, you disapprove. Look, I know you love playing. Then how come except for church, you're the happiest when I don't? I finally land the gig of my life and you're upset. You didn't see how tough being a musician was on your father. I don't want to see you struggle like that. So dad could pursue his dreams and I can't? Your father had me. Most times this shop is what paid the bills. So when I'm gone, who's gonna pay yours? Music is all I think about. From the moment I wake up in the morning to the moment I fall asleep at night. You can't eat dreams for breakfast, Joey. Then I don't want to eat. This isn't about my career, Mom. It's, it's my reason for living. And I know Dad felt the same way. I'm just afraid that if I died today, that my life would have amounted to nothing. Joey... Just from a like a story writing perspective, don't you think that like the resistant parent like is like the ultimate villain? You know what I mean? It's like it's the perfect villain because in order to overcome your your fears, your obstacles, you have to figure that out first and get them on your side before you can slay the dragon at the end of the day. 
Like there, it's a story mechanism that always works for me. Yeah, me too. I'm thinking of Marianne Creed Mm -hmm. with Adonis Mm -hmm. and Apollo and that whole line. To a certain extent, some of the conversations that we ultimately get to in Coco. But what they do in that scene, expertly written, and I know you looked into how many people wrote the script. Only three for this one. Only three, okay. Uh Um, You instantly humanize mom instead of being this ball breaker to a much more likable character that you kind of want to throw your arms around because she's in heart and soul at her core. It's just, she's very protective to get there. That's also, you know, it's also brave too. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about the characters we're just mentioning. We're talking about Marianne Creed and you didn't say it, but Klaatu and Joe black. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're, we're everything from the day the earth stood still to, creed and all of the things that work and don't work with parenting in that like we are in a very very well, even, great space with even, characters that we love even like ethan edwards and the surgers i mean well said like a parental figure that's like almost like your enemy and you don't want them to be the enemy like what a terrible thing to say when your parents like the bad guy yeah so you do have to kind of go through this whole uh this whole thing to get them on your side and Something really great happens here is I think she sees for how passionate he is, what it means to him. And instead of fixing and stitching up the suit that they're there to get repaired at this tailor shop, she gives him dad's suit that he used to wear, which is this slick, like, royal blue suit. It's awesome. Uh, This works for me. Again, why I want to spend more time here in New York than in Soul Land, whatever the great before. What's interesting about that, though, is it's working with what you just said Mm -hmm. with the same color and the same space. That's blue, and I mean that Mm -hmm. metaphorically and also just visually. Yeah. In New York. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do we want... Okay, so the movie is, what, an hour and 40 minutes? Yeah. Do we need about 15, 10 to 15 more minutes in New York proper and maybe 10 to 15 minutes less in Soulville? Probably. I think so, too. Or at least that's what I want. I think so, too. I mean, maybe the kiddies don't want that, uh, but... uh, that scene right there, like for someone who's going to see this movie, that's five or six. Damn. <laughs> Quite an interesting point there. I'm thinking about this right now. You said maybe not for the kids. Yeah. New York as the way it's presented in this movie is very colorful, but despite the colors, it's presented in a way that's also very kid friendly. We're talking about an uneaten bagel, a whirly bird from the tree leaf thingy, whatever you call that, mm-hmm. a sucker, a Metro pass, Pizza. Pizza crust. Mm -hmm. Those are in the spectrum of adult to childhood, probably more on the side of just the junk that kids collect, right? Yeah. So I think they're aware of who their audience is, but they're coloring it with big broad strokes that mostly have vibrant enough colors that you and I can appreciate the adultness of it while not scaring away the kids. And I think that's been a wild success from fade into fade out in this film even though you and I have taken it to task a little bit on, we wish it wasn't so cute. To be fair, we're not nine. Well, that's that's an art form. I mean, to, yeah. to set your goals to make a kid's movie, but then to make sure you're having these really heady themes about passion, dreams, existence, mortality, is a lofty goal for a kid's movie. So it's... They're, 
They could do TED Talks or like seminars or classes uh, at film schools on this entire subject, which is the balance of tone, which is we're making goal first. This is how I imagine a Pixar board meeting goes. This is a kid's movie. It's animated. Here's what the film's about. And we're going to just make sure we have enough in there for the adults, enough in there for the kids, but we're not going to overstep either of those lines. They walk right down the middle of both of them. And to their credit, I don't think, it, you know, as hard as we are on Globland, uh, I don't think that's necessarily what ruins the movie. What ruins the movie for me? I mean, I end up at the end of the day, I end up really kind of enjoying this film, but it, that's such a delicate line to to stay in. Uh, everyone could go to school on, on something like this. Well, you just said it right there. The only other person who I think was that I can think of, the first person that came to mind that was a genius at this mm-hmm. and knew how to do it, was Steven Spielberg in the seventies and eighties. Okay, you and me are almost on like sharing the same brain thought right now. Because E.T.'s the same thing. I mean, it's a cutesy turd alien, <laughs> and, and it's a story about divorce and, you know, familial acceptance of a strange other. It's it's something that he was really great at doing, that Spielbergian film of the 80s. I wrestle with the notion that to win the box office, you have to sell the 18 to 35-year-old male market because what the summer says is essentially that's not true. You need to make a four-quadrant tentpole film, and Steven Spielberg did that to the letter. Mm -hmm. You know who else does that to the letter time and time and time again? Because it's what you and I are talking about right now and would be having with any other adult post-viewing on this film in a Pixar film are these rather adult themes. Mm Mm-hmm. If Pixar was going to teach a class in spec screenplay that is four quadrants, summer blockbuster, everyone that plays in the summer space needs to be attendee on day one. Yeah. Because they have it down to a science. And I'd like to say, well, it's because they pick really simple concepts, but you know what? They actually don't. If you take Coco, that's not a high concept one log line pitch. It's not. Is the pitch on that film that sells it a young boy struggles against his family's desire to not let him play music in the real life and afterlife. No one's, no one cares. That's a shitty pitch. Mm -hmm. These aren't high concept films. And so the notion that if you have a one sentence log line and if everybody can see the film in it, it wildly exceeds everybody's notions of what box office success is going to be and blah, 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 blah. Pixar, I think, is throwing a big middle finger to that and saying, we have a better way to do that. And maybe, Jesse, maybe, as much as we've taken it to task, getting enough of the right creative people in the room together to pin an idea presents an infinite number of creative answers to conflicted problems. I got a great question for you right now. Go. Whose formula is more bulletproof? Oh, boy. Pixar or Marvel? Oh, honestly, I have to say, I mean, we haven't seen it yet. And you and I have been talking about this probably since 2014 about fatigue. We haven't seen it yet, but I imagine it has to happen at some point. It's inevitable. That's just. So your answer is Pixar. My answer is Pixar because what's fatigue in Pixar? I mean, if you're literally coming every summer with a new world and concept that we may or may not haven't seen or given thought to, that's always going to be fresh and exciting. Their brand, the bouncing light on the eye, is refreshing. 
think you've made a pretty good case. Marvel has essentially two worlds, which is zeitgeist, metropolis, and space. The other thing, too, that I think Marvel loses on is as much as their stories are specced, they were specced up to 60 years ago and from the large library of already established stories. They are essentially adapting into spec because Stan Lee specced them in the 70s. I guess the, the, the thing so about... I think I'm agreeing with you. Yeah, no, I think the thing about Marvel, too, is they found a formula. Because this is the thing that just kind of ruins Marvel a little bit for me is, well, you enjoy the movie while watching it and have a great time in the theater or at home, wherever you're watching it. Uh, it's so beat it out. Every film is identical beat-wise with kind of nondescript villains other than like a Thanos or a, yeah. or a this that they almost are like just so cookie-cutter. But then people like that. You know what I mean? Like it, you, you go there because the familiar, you know what the package you're getting. You know what Marvel's going to present to you. You're not getting David Lynch. <laughs> so let, okay. So let me, it's safe. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's the word. And maybe this isn't. Cause I'm going to ask you a question yeah. in this film yeah. that we are doing today. Yeah. Who's the antagonist? Yeah. Good point. <laughs> Jerry or Terry or the, well, they're all named Jerry. <laughs> who's the, the accounting guys, Terry, yeah, right? He's Terry. Barely, he's the antagonist. Mm -hmm. If it's an antagonist, it's a not very prevalent antagonist. So maybe then the film is a character study, but it's not called Joe. It's Soul. called Soul. Yeah. So this film isn't high concept. So what kind of a movie is this? Well, to everything you just said, if I have to watch this or what's really low on my list of Marvel films like Iron Man 3 yeah. or even middle of the tier Marvel films like um, Ant-Man and Wasp. Yeah. Ooh, good examples. <laughs> I'm probably going with this. Yeah. I think we have defended our case in the court of Rice Smile Public Opinion that maybe Marvel's second fiddle to Pixar inspect, but I will say this, mm -hmm. good for Disney because it owns them both. Exactly. <laughs> for, for as much as we hate the rounded edges on Disney's concepts, we're full of shit right now because look what we just said, Jesse. Yeah. It's not true. Yeah, exactly. They, 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 own, they own all of that. It's their umbrella of creativity. We didn't even mention Star Wars. And I know they own the world, and it's easy for us sort of offhandedly to <laughs> say, like, the they do. I mean, from the ABC to the Angels, I mean, they own everything. So when you're born, you just get, like, a Disney stamp, like, on you? like Pretty much. They own you. <laughs> <laughs> and we tease each other, and, and, like... It's funny. No, I know exactly what you mean. Backhandedly compliment in a satirical way that... Mm -hmm. But there's a reason why. Yeah. Again, and you've put this in my head from way back in the beginning of the show. Mm -hmm. I'm going to look into it now, too. Yeah. <clears throat> Did Walt Disney have parental issues that were such that he needed to create a fantasy land to escape from that? Because when you go to Disneyland, and we go a lot, <laughs> yeah. the kids and the parents are sharing equal amounts of joy, except for the kid who's reached exhaustion and is crying his eyes out in front of the gate at uh, whatever ride. Like, and that's that's more about fatigue than it is. But mostly, they say it's the happiest place in the world because it's complete escapism. Mm -hmm. Was Walt Disney so smart and laid such a strong foundation that he was just able to decode that? Or was he psychoanalyzing a trouble within himself, Alfred Hitchcock style. This is why I'm going to use every blonde woman in the film and never sleep with any of them. Yeah. 
that one. I think so too. That's more interesting, at least. <laughs> let's let's just make that our belief. Oh, I'll, just, I'll still do the research though. But no, when you look at a lot of those early films and pre fifty five when Disneyland opened, there's there's a lot of issues with parents and like I said, especially mothers. And yeah, Psycho Freud analyzed that any which way you will, but it found an interesting through line into conflict and coming of age stories and fish out of waters. Like he found a way to do kind of all of them in cartoons. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's entirely fascinating to me. We'll, we'll get more into Walt Disney at another day because the man himself is interesting. <laughs> I have to tell you, when you posed the idea of Pixar to me, yeah. I was lukewarm, but I was like, let's just do it. What the hell? We have had in now three consecutive weeks conversations on what would not be on the surface considered smart or cerebral films yeah. that we died for in weeks with movies that were so overwrought with their own cerebral nature. Wonder Woman 1984, right? I would pray for a cerebral theme in that film. It's not, it's happening organically. Like we're not presetting this up before the show begins. We're not having a discussion about it. This is just happening in the moment. They're tackling good themes in an interesting way that is, if not loved, then at least interesting enough to have some appeal through an entire watch at the first time. There you go. And there's been several films that we've watched where I was like, Jesse, can you turn this off? Mank. <laughs> two, two weeks ago. <laughs> That's not the first time. No, yeah. no. I, I mean, you make fun of me. Like, if it wasn't for the podcast, I would have shut it off. That's my favorite line that you say. But it's... Nowhere even in the periphery of discussion for the last weeks. And I don't like kids' films, and I don't really like animation either. Yeah. There it is. There's something to that. Mm-hmm. To that. Uh, so let's let's wrap this thing up here. So there's a bit of a crux in the film where, you know, they're kind of jockeying for power and wanting to be in Joe's body because I got to play this gig. And then they're finally pulled back to the great beyond. And uh Let's say Agent 22. That's a video game. That's Agent 47 from Hitman. Um, But (laughs) did that get smart too? Yeah. Uh, Number 22 is just like, well, you know, I'm going back. You know, I failed. You know, like you're not going to give me, you know, what I want, what I need. And then uh, I'm just going to kind of go off into the land of lost souls. Mm -hmm. And then Joe's like, well, shit, you know, you got your your merit badge, your earth badge. And so if you ain't going to use it. It does look like a merit badge, right? I'm going to go back and use it. So Joe does. He goes and lives out his dream. He slays it. Uh, but there's just something a little bit missing. You did great. I'm so proud of you, Joey. Gotta get to bed. We old. I love you, Mom. <laughs> you play a hundred shows and one of them is killer. You don't give many like tonight. Yeah. So, uh, what happens next? We come back tomorrow night and... Do it all again. What's wrong, Teach? It's just I've been waiting on this day for my entire life. It's, I thought I'd feel different. I heard this story about a fish. He swims up to this older fish and says, I'm trying to find this thing they call the ocean. The ocean, says the older fish. That's what you're in right now. This, says the young fish, this is water. What I want is the ocean. See you tomorrow. 
that's just the film in a nutshell. Like that that saying right there, you know, you go through your whole life looking for what you think you need, but what you don't realize is you've been in it the entire time. Will you indulge me for about four minutes in a story? Yeah, go ahead. I don't know where I heard this, but from time to time in my life it comes up, and I think now's a good time to share it. Yeah, go ahead. So there's this town. And in this town, the only thing that lives there is chickens. And one day in the town meeting post board where they post all the, you know, bulletin announcements, Mm -hmm. a sign gets posted sort of without anyone's knowledge that if the town of chickens will come to the gym on Saturday, they will all be able to fly through a lesson taught. And of course the chickens cluck around and say, we don't fly. Everybody knows chickens don't fly. But like clockwork, that Saturday shows up and every single chicken arrives at the gym. And there's a rooster. Mm Mm-hmm in the middle of the gym floor saying, all right, I'm glad to see that you all are here. I'm going to teach you how to fly today and sure cat calls and clucking and <laughs> we can't fly. Everyone knows chickens can't fly, but all right, give us your best shot. He says, I want you to go down to the baseline over there underneath that basket. Mm-hmm. And I want every one of you to get a running start. And here are the three steps. I want you to run a little bit faster, jump a little bit higher and flap a little bit harder. And the chickens look around and say, oh, so you mean try to fly. And he looks at each one of them and says, have you ever tried it? And they mostly say no. Mm -hmm. So he lines them up, blows the whistle to start it, and they all go off. And every single one of those chickens, Jesse, makes it to the free throw line on the same end, but fly a little bit. Yeah. And he says, okay, see you next week. And these chickens go home in stunned amazement that they were able to fly a little bit. Week two comes and we go through the same process. Not quite as skeptical, but lines them up and they say, okay, what's the lesson? How do we get further this time? He says, I want you to jump a little bit higher, run a little bit faster and flap a little harder than you did last week. Essentially try harder. Yeah. Whistle blows. Every single one of those chickens makes it all the way to half court. Now. Progress. Exuberant. Mm -hmm. They go home and they cannot wait for week three, which is Saturday show up and every chicken is ready to fly because they're going to make it to the opposite free throw line. Mm -hmm. And that rooster says, all right, everybody, I want you all to flap a little, and they finish a little bit harder, jump a little higher, run a little faster. We got it. Tell us when to go. He says, but we're not going to stop at the free throw line. I want you to fly from baseline to baseline. And he blows that whistle and Jesse, every single one of those chickens makes it. And it's high fives and glad beaks and happiness and general joy. And then every single one of the chickens walks home. So that story meant a lot to me because it was, as the journey is important, if you don't practice the application, what the hell good does it mean? Yeah. And her story of the fish in the ocean and the water is another example of while you're in the middle of it, Mm -hmm. if you're not appreciating what's going on, what good did it matter anyway? Yeah. And I think that chicken story, which is something that I found myself thinking about and use it as sort of a motivating internal device or whatever you want to call that. Yeah. Fits for what Joe's going through. Mm -hmm. Because when he has what he's always wanted, his boss says was a great show. Yeah. He still rides the subway home. Mm -hmm. And he realizes in that moment, like the pizza and the sound of the subway and the guy that bumped into him that caused him to feel scared. All of those things were what he was taking for granted because the show was temporary and fleeting while all that other stuff was in perpetuity and continuous.
Well, like I said in the Onward episode, I mean, in Pink Floyd terms, you know, time is better than money. So no matter what pulpit you put yourself on or pedestal or whatever, whether you make a million dollars or you make one dollar, we all want more time on this planet to do things like that. Make experiences, live, eat. Matt, this is going to be hilarious. I, you know, I'm, I'm friends with, uh, you know, a lot of people on, on social media and, you know, health food fanatics, you know, that, you know, eat clean and organic and, you know, all the power to you. I mean, that's a discipline that I guess. Yeah. I never learned, but to me, food is one of the delicacies of life that, you know, if I go walk outside this house and I get pummeled by a truck, you better be good. God damned that. I ate that double cheeseburger on Thursday night. You know what I mean? I do. Like, that's such a lesson in living. Like, don't stunt the experiences you can have because you put limits on yourself. I don't think that's a way to live. That's my own personal just belief. I think you and I both have gone to school on a friend that we both share that doesn't know us because he actually doesn't exist. His name's Red Redding. Mm -hmm. Get busy living or get busy dying. Yeah. It's goddamn right. Yeah. Goddamn it's right. And this is very poignant for Joe. So he's just realized that like all this, everything I wanted, he always thought his spark was piano playing. And it's not. It was to kind of learn your experiences, how you learn to come to jazz, those moments with mom riding the subway. That's an experience in and of itself. And through that, he's like, I got to find a way back to 22 because I got to make it up to her because as much as I had a good life here, she needs to have that opportunity as well. So I love the way he gets back and it's, he's got to put himself in that space, the zone virtuoso piano playing in the writer's room at Pixar right now. Cause we've done the Are last they, three it, sequential Pixar films. Is this the Pixar writer's room is just some laptops, a, a whiteboard and like boxes of tissues everywhere. Cause how are they not just like going through all their deepest, darkest traumas, writing these films, they have to be pulling from something deep in. To write these types of movies. No doubt. Yeah. (laughs) But I also think, though, that's happened, and it happened to the letter and onward as the experiences he didn't get with his dad, he had with his brother who ended up being his dad and reflecting upon what you should have not taken for granted. And that's also in Coco. And then clearly today, that idea of be present or aware or appreciate the now is something that is clearly emphasized because I find it remarkable that each of the three films came to that on happenstance in their own way. Something is going on, and you know what I'm okay with? I'm really okay if this is a kid's film and that's the lesson that a young person, because you're like you said, time is gone and you can't get it back, is able to recognize how important the now is. That's invaluable because I, I wasn't taught that lesson. And you know, the folly of youth plays into that and you have so much, why do you need to worry about now? And I get the forces that are working against that. Cause I was a kid once and I have one now. Yeah, It's hard to be appreciative, but I got to say in the context and the construct of what we're living in now <laughs> and all of the things that seem to be can't, you must force yourself to find the things that are a can. And this movie is another reminder of if you don't make the effort, that's on you, man. Well, I, I get asked a lot just about, you know, kind of just piggybacking on what you're saying about, wow, Jesse, you like this like podcasting thing. You like, you've like, what a great hobby. And like, how did you, how did you 
come to do something like that and this and that is like it's just an idea and then you just apply it and then you just go for it you know what i mean like there's no practice of doing this mm-hmm. you just do it and even from my own perspective you know my parents they didn't they didn't like horror movies like that was something i found mm-hmm. um whiskey was something that actually you introduced me to when we started writing all those years ago well i'm glad that stuck and the heroin didn't but okay at least one of them did <laughs> <laughs> I had to get clean. Anyway, uh, there's something to just jumping out there. Like you said, you mm-hmm. know, you got to like, in order to catch lightning in a bottle, you got to go out into the rain and just be willing to, if you're going to stay inside, like what's the point? Yes. So if you want to catch lightning in a bottle, you got to get in the rain. But if they're like, this is just the overall lesson of the film. And then we'll get to the final scene. If there's something you've always wanted to do, go do it. Like what's stopping you? What are you waiting for? Yeah. Ryan nation, go live your life. If you've always wanted to write a book, sit down in front of a computer, just start writing. If you've always wanted to do a podcast, like just get the equipment and just do it. Just get in there and and find a way. If you want to make films, like as much as as hard as you are on Tarantino, the man actually has some good advice. Yeah. Uh, when they asked him, like, would you recommend film school? I'm like, no, like how you're going to make movies is just like get a camera, go out and choose something and go out and show it to people and then go out and go do it again. Do the mm-hmm. whole thing over and over and over. And now you've made a movie. Mm-hmm. So... What I know what's stopping you. That's Joe's lesson at the end of the day is he sees all those <laughs> horcruxes on, on his counter of pizza crust and uh, mm. suckers and all that uh, stuff that 22 got to live vicariously through him. That means more than this spark that he thought he had the whole time. He makes his way back to number 22 and he's going to pay it forward or pay it backwards. However, this soul mm. world works. Mm-hmm. You ready? Huh? To come live. I'm scared, Joe. I'm not good enough. Anyway, I, I never got my spark. Yes, you did. Your spark isn't your purpose. That last box fills in when you're ready to come live. And the thing is, you're pretty great at jazzing. So they make the leap to Earth, and he knows she's going to go, but I can't. I like the music in those kind of Earth-jumping sequences. You know who did the music for this movie? Who? Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross again. How about that? Yeah, some just really nice kind of ethereal music, but I'd like a whole. Um, Twenty two gets to go to Earth in whatever form, whether she ends up in like a in a dog or a snake or what a is twenty two? What do you see twenty two as? Oh man, I don't know. I see her as a very vicarious child. <laughs> I think I'm with you. Just really rambunctious, mm-hmm. but that's what makes her her. Uh. Here's something interesting, and maybe we differ on this, but in the final sequence, you know, Joe's on the uh, David Lynch escalator to the afterlife, and he's made acceptance with it, but then, like, Jerry, these beings come, and they're going to pay it forward to him. Like, you did such a good job getting the 22nd created soul in existence, a place on Earth. We're going to let you go back to Earth. I know it's a kid's movie. I know we don't want to get too dark with it. This is just me. I like endings like this, but I almost kind of want to see 
I almost called him Doug. Uh, What's his name? Just blank Joe. Joe. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Matt Dixon's disease just showed up in your life. Yeah. I want to see him go on to the beyond. Mm. Like his role has been completed. His arc's been completed. I know why we go back because that's it's a fairly morbid ending, and I don't know if we want to end the film on that. But for me, I can I can handle the acceptance of second once and second chances, and now you fulfilled your purpose. Now let's go on to see what the next stage is. Soul too, and I want to see that movie, but like that, you know what I mean. But he does get a second chance, and he gets to go back and live in his body. Do you like that, or do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want him to go on like I do? I wonder about how it means to the other people on the escalator. So what I mean by that is when he first dies, he runs into the woman who's 116 years old and she said, I'm ready for this. I guess we're talking about enlightenment. So maybe we're getting to Hinduism and Buddhism and maybe some Eastern religions here. Yeah. Fine with all that. I think all that stuff is fascinating. Like the different options that societies have created to explain death. He gets the chance to do it over again. And you know what he chooses to do different? Pretty much nothing. Yeah. Except just appreciate it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Is full appreciation burning it out at 116 years old? Maybe. I know where you're going with dark. I hear you. Like, trust me, I get it. Yeah. On high, I get it. It's a darker ending, yeah. I'm not opposed to your, like if they send him off to the great hereafter peacefully and purpose fulfilled, I don't think that's so dark that kids, you know, (laughs) cower, need therapy. I think that's a very poignant ending. Certainly. But I think that this one in a weird way for me poses a larger philosophical discussion, which doesn't play well for kids because they're not going to like no kids having this conversation with you and me right now. They have to pee at this moment (laughs) because they've been in this movie for an hour and 40 minutes. Dad, what are you talking about? Shut up. Can I have (laughs) some more popcorn? Let's watch Wonder Woman 84. Oh, God. (laughs) She she wouldn't say that. Uh, I know what you mean, though. I, I don't have a, I don't have an answer. It's for you. just an interesting space to consider. I think. I agree with you a hundred percent. I'm also on the same plane of what about this other way? I mean, I'm also in the kind of full belief that in the writers' room they had that conversation about: Are we sending Joe up the escalator, or are we going this other path? And they have a conversation about it. You know what I mean? You know what else? Speaking of that writers' room, at some point the the creative elements have to answer to a larger financial power that says, okay, we're going to green light this. Yeah. For all of the troubling stories we hear on production and oppressiveness and Lily Tomlin versus uh, David O'Russell. Russell and if you haven't seen that clip, uh, go get on YouTube and watch yeah. that. <laughs> Somebody at Pixar has enough insight to let the writers take it just far enough. Because I will say this, despite where it goes, where it goes, and how this finishes, it's right up at the edge of not going too far. Yeah. But it's gone to the point where if you want to dig in deep, you can dig pretty deep. And if not, and you just want to be happy and have some popcorn and a big hug at the end, which is totally okay with the Pixar film. Yeah. Offers both. And there's very few things for all the vertigo moments that you and I cherish. Yeah. And sometimes it's harder to come to the ones that I just talk about. Well, I like it. It's bold. And that's, I like bold filmmaking. It's one of the reasons why I wanted Harry Potter to die in the seventh book is just like, 
Yeah. I like when they go there because it's unexpected. Because I have seen a lot of movies, yeah. and I kind of know what to expect, and I like being thrown for a loop once in a while. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> if you and I created a genre today, which was Pixar for adults, which is tackling all of these larger adult themes maybe that we've played with here, Is it monetizable? Is that a sustainable genre? The animated adult feature? And I don't, I mean, you're like, I guess we can talk about heavy metal if you want, but like, I mean, real movies. I like heavy metal. I do too, but you know what I mean. You know, Stevie Nicks, speaking of blue, has a song on that soundtrack called Blue Blue Light. Yeah. More back to blue and God bless Stevie Nicks, but not, and Pat Benatar. Go, sorry. You're going to get me off no, on I'm a track think, I'm thinking about heavy metal now. That movie's kind of, that movie's wild. Uh, no. Because the animated piece to me, and this is no knock against animated films, because there's films like Heavy Metal and Fritz the Cat, and those are not for kids. The Hobbit stuff. Yeah, the Ralph Bakshi. Bakshi, yeah. yeah Hobbit, uh, Lord of the Rings. Fritz the Cat. Yeah, no, I, that ain't a kid's movie. Kind of Dumbo isn't either, but anyway, keep going. I want to say no, and again, this is no knock against animated films, but the animated piece is in and of itself a gateway for the kids. Drawn cellular animation film cells is appeasing visually from a sensory perspective for kids. It's not to say that adults can't like that stuff too, but I think it's kids first, adults second. I think that's the motto. No doubt. Yeah. If we reverse that and we go adults first, kids second, maybe, do you think adults would be warm enough to the idea of an animated adult story that they would go see it versus the same version of an adult story just told with not animation? I'm trying to think if they if what what film best equates something like that and even something like The Iron Giant that, you know, deals with a lot of, you know, adult themes and weapons and nuclear armament is still mm-hmm. a kid's movie at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I have an answer to that. It's That's tough. a tricky, <laughs> again, we've talked about the fine line. That's like you cross over it and you might lose your audience. I don't know. I guess we, it comes down to this concept and execution. Oh, yeah. Those are two things we've never spoken <laughs> that's, about that's before. Ev- that's every movie. Right. <laughs> right. What is, uh, what's your favorite tasting note of Soul. I really like, in a whiplashy Terrence Fletcher kind of way, the final Joe getting his moment before a crowd of 70 raucous every night attendees at the same one of 50 jazz clubs in New York shows. Don't you want to be there, though? The sooner we can get to New York and go see the New York Islanders (laughs) and to Matt and Mitch, because I said I was going to do it this week in the email that I said to Matt and Mitch from the Eyes on Isles podcast. (laughs) That's your shout out, fellas. You guys have meant the world to me. But anyway, yes. That's C- number two. CD Jazz Club and Bar. Like, I just want to be a patron there t- oh. taking it all in with a glass of bourbon or rye. Oh, my God. For that matter. That's heaven. Mine has to be the scene with him and mom in the tailor shop when it's she finally one. gives him dad's suit. But it's a final acceptance on, I finally understand why you are so passionate about music. And... I think that's that's my favorite scene in, in in the film. It's again, like I said, you know, you're finally getting parent on your side. That's hard to do. But Matt, do you have a? Oh my god! 
Speaking of which, I saw the best meme I've seen in a long time, which was that character's face, and the text above it said, when you watch the latest episode of WandaVision this week. Yeah. And it was that. <laughs> kind of true. Yeah. Uh, but what's your scene of that in Soul? When the wrong guy gets killed accidentally. I don't even know what that cat's name is from the barbershop. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and comes back just petrified. I think that guy's in really bad shape, even though Terry brought him back. He's seen the other side and come back. Like, that's playing in a very scary space. We're playing fast and loose with who decides on who lives and who dies. That move, that kind of moved me a bit, man. Mm -hmm. What's that guy's name? I don't know. I don't know. Again, I, it's, it's escaping me, but. He's just the local hater in the barbershop that's always there with the <sighs> negative opinion yeah, on everything. The quippy opinion, yeah. And he happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and accidentally gets brought a, back. A or, glimpse into this world. And you know the way they do it, too, is for not having any color is very, very vibrant. Mm -hmm. Like He just goes vision corpse gray. <laughs> oh, good. good. In animated form. Excellent. Let's hear uh, yours. Mine's going to be actually when the band student is coming in to return the trombone because she's quitting, mm -hmm. which is a shame because she's actually really good. Really good. We've seen it in the opening scene of the film, and then as she kind of pulls out, hey, I was working on this, and what do you think? And it's like this like virtuoso jazz solo of like a 12-year-old that's really well done. Uh, the shame in people giving up on hobbies or interests because of what other people think about you to hell with them. I told that story weeks ago about, you know, no one's going to give a shit who you are when you get to college. So enjoy the ride. Yeah. So that's, that's heartbreaking for me is when someone's willing to give up on something that they're pretty good at and they like doing, you can tell she likes doing it, uh, playing trombone, but because of the social perceptions of it, I don't want to do it. Mm. Kills me. Mm -hmm. Who's the master distiller on Soul? I think Jamie Foxx. I didn't know that was his voice, which he has a very recognizable voice, and I asked you who's the voice because I didn't see the credits. Mm -hmm. um, Jamie Foxx is really good at Joe Gardner. Delivers him quite well. Completely believe that character Maybe his best performance since Ray. Good choice. I'm going to go with the director, Pete Doctor. Mm -hmm. um, in these three episodes, we've covered the three of the four big Pixar filmmakers running running the ship. Dan Scanlon, um, Lee Unkrich, and Pete Doctor. The one we're missing in there is Brad Bird, mm -hmm. um, who's got his hands in the incredible uh, universe. Those guys, now that kind of John Lasseter's out of the picture and he's not doesn't really have a hand in Pixar's work, those are the guys running the ship. Um, I don't know what the, good. I don't know what the bullpen looks like. I don't know what the writers room looks like, but I imagine it's one of those guys is, you know, guiding what these things look like and and how they're presented to us. And you'll see their names pop up time and time again. What's next for Doctor Rumored or otherwise? Because I know you looked into. I it. actually don't. I don't. I don't even know what's up next for Pixar. To be completely honest yeah. with you, so I'm anxious to see. You know, this has been a, a rare year for them. Um, Usually it's just one film a year, but this year they had Onward and Soul, so it's a two-year uh, year for Pixar. Next year will probably just be one movie, but um, I actually don't even know what that is. So if you know, 
write us in and let us know what to cover. <laughs> Do you think Soul is a box office winner if it gets to the box office? I know it didn't, but is this is this a huge runaway hit or is it a little too sleepy and too particular? Well, you know, if they let us in to see the books on what the streaming contracts look like, I don't know. But uh, theatrically, oh, if it's released, theatrically, if that, it was theatrically, most definitely, I think so. It too. just comes out in like November too, and there's like not kind of a lot out in that month. Oh yeah, it slays. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. If it has a November or February, if Coco release, comes out in November and does eight hundred million worldwide, this film's doing that too. Yeah, their box office, they're a box office guarantee. You know what I mean? Again, talking about the brand. And we the comparison to Marvel, people go see, and we talked about Nolan and Tenant. I mean, we, he's at the time now where we go see a film because his name's attached to it, Spielberg. Uh, Pixar's the same thing. I mean, regardless of what the film's going to be and present to us, people go see it because it is a Pixar movie. And then there's that's years of work to get to that status. <laughs> Agreed. How are you going to rate and grade Soul? We have Rock Gut, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. This Single Barrel full on. This is the essence of Single Barrel. There's some really great moments. There's a couple of not too good moments. It's Overall, it's a quality film. But like a lot of the Pixar stuff, it is wildly unique in and of itself to do the world of jazz in the pre and post life cycles to remind everybody that none of that matters because it's mostly about what you're doing right now is sheer genius. Complete high concept gold, even though it's not high concept. <laughs> so I guess maybe spec gold. Uh, brilliantly written, super crafted, visually, visually uh, stellar, well acted. Um, I don't know what's keeping it from being top shelf to me other than Pastel Glob World and Not Enough New York. Single barrel minus for myself. Yeah, I'm with you in the in the exact same camp. Wholly unique. Uh, it's fun to look at. Sounds great. And yeah, you get on board with the story. I want more New York than Soul Land. But I was just thinking just to myself, man, if Toy Story is just, if people aren't into that, because the other thing going for Toy Story at the same time is no one had made a computer-generated animated film before that. Like, what if people go see that and they're just like, man, this look, looks weird. I ain't in, into this. I want it drawn. If that film's a flop, they don't establish a sense of legitimacy in the filmmaking world. Mm -hmm. And we don't get to as sure bets that Soul presents. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Talking about it being a, a box office guarantee. So, yeah, to that, there's a lot of power there. Uh, yeah, single barrel, single barrel minus. It's on the outside looking in, it's kind of in the same space that Onward is for myself. Um, so close, really solid films. So close to being like masterpiece. Yeah. There's just a couple things holding it back. All three of these films, huh? Yeah. Well, so Coco. And you know what all three of those films are? Yeah. Is that you and I are not sub 12. Yeah. Coco went, rang a little closer uh, through for me, mm -hmm. but. It's been a good cask, I mean, mm -hmm. and some new films to talk about, too. I want to ask you a question before you go to the nightcap. Okay. When you look at the slate of upcoming films, and I'm excited about Dune, which I know you are, and I know you're super excited about Kong and Godzilla. Am I excited about that, or is it going to be like Godzilla, <laughs> King of the Monsters, Matt? I was mostly being facetious there. Are you oh, excited about it? I want that to be good. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
if a Pixar film shows up as upcoming, are you opening night excited about it? Okay, so th- that, that just based on just Pixar. That's a good question because just based on Pixar, mm-hmm. it's actually movies that I actually kind of wait to see. Yeah. I don't run out to to see them. I just know I'll get to it eventually, and I'm probably going to like it in some space. All right, so man, we just did three movies in three weeks that you liked, and you just and said what said, you said. <laughs> we don't go see Jesse, or everybody, Jesse is, a, and me too, because he's right. Such a snob. What a snob. You adult snob. I know. It's true, though. I probably am seeing it, but. That's strange, isn't it? Yes, because we just admitted three weeks in a row they were good. And like, short of Wally, and I know you like Inside Out more than me, but I don't like that film. They mostly don't have any misses. And we review stuff eagerly often on this podcast. Yeah. That is way worse than even Wally or Inside Out could be at its drunken, heroin induced worst. Serenity. Glass, brother. Like you and oh, yeah, glass, glass is garbage. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Like hashtag glass is garbage. No, I know exactly what you mean. That's a weird space to be in. And I've even acknowledged it. And you know what? It's still not going to change. The only ones I've been like that for was the Toy Story stuff and mm-hmm. the the second Incredibles. Like I was really looking forward to seeing that movie. Mm-hmm. But everything else is like, yeah, I'll get to it eventually. I'll be totally honest with you. I didn't see Coco in the theaters. That was at home. Mm-hmm. And I bought it. Mm-hmm. Uh and this film we all saw at home, but yeah. the last pick. Okay, let me see if I can remember. The last Pixar film I saw in the theaters that wasn't an Incredibles was actually Monsters University. And that's, I think, 2015. So we're talking about six years. I think it was <laughs> onward for me. And I actually think that might have been the last film that I saw re- released mm-hmm. theatrically. Yeah, right. Because well, beginning of March. Invisible Man and Onward, <clears throat> I think, pretty much back to back. Yep. We're getting close, homie. We're getting very close, close. but let's wrap this thing up with a nightcap. It's gorgeous. I could listen to that all day, every day. Well, that was me playing that. I pulled my sax out and I'm just, I'm going to put it away right now. So So hit a few notes for me. (laughs) (laughs) Do we know who that actual musician is? Did you look it up? I don't. So that's not Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Uh, I'll look up, I'll look up the, because the jazz combo pieces were composed by somebody else. Sure. I don't know who that saxophonist is, but yeah, I love that. Mm -hmm. I live in that space. Yep. Hit us with the nightcap, man. I know you're looking forward to it. This is your best Pixar spec upcoming pitch. You get to be creative element in the writer's room to the powers that can green light it. Go. I actually want you to go first because I am deathly afraid that we have a very similar concept. (laughs) All right, I'll go first. Okay. Mine takes place in post office of any town USA in the section that is the dead letter office. So all of the letters that go to places that can never be delivered creates an infinite number of possibilities for what Pixar does really well, which is personification. And that's the letters in a Toy Story-like way 
take on the characteristic traits of what the letter is written as love letter, um, Santa, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In this particular town, in this dead letter office, there are two people that see it. Monday through Wednesday, half a day, and Wednesday, half a day through Sunday. And one's a man, and one's a woman. And these letters... Is the guy Jason Bateman? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Oh, that would be really good. I didn't thought about that. Can you give me Blake Lively on the other end? Because she plays every role in every female movie for me ever. There you go. These letters begin at correspondence with these two in the space that they were written, because that's all they know, to bring them together in a Cyrano de Bergerac-like romance. Sign me up. Let's write it. Doesn't so, that sound good? Sort of the, the letters like animated. Mm-hmm. They have like. So the letter that's written to Santa is Santa. The letter that's written to the Easter bunny is Easter bunny. The letter that's written to dead grandma who you miss is dead grandma. And they all just exist in a toy story like personified world. The letter that's written to Ted Bundy's. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's no, certainly. That's, that's awesome. There's, <laughs> there's certainly a finality to the letters too, because you have to dispose of them at some point. So you get that element, Mm -hmm. but what these letters do are recognize too socially awkward, but not off putting just kind of sequestered in a non weird lighthouse way. You know what I mean? Like no sex with mermaids. That's funny. You know what I mean? I do. And see that there is great chemistry between these two that spend about five minutes together every Wednesday when they change hands on their shifts. It's the only time they see each other. Do you have a title for this? Dead Letter Office. Awesome. I want to see that. I I, I told you. I think you and I would excel pretty well in the writer's room at Pixar. I mean, because like we would have to like be like restrained to like any like, okay, we have this existing universe and now make it work type of thing. Like just coming up with like cool concepts and shit. Like Mm -hmm. I think it would be pretty good. All right. Ready for mine? I am. (laughs) Okay, so I tried to think of a like a world or an arena we haven't seen, and I was I was really taken aback to you know onward, and we hadn't really seen like that age before. What like Brave? That's kind of those characters, but we haven't really seen like a sports world before. And I don't mm. know if I, I don't know if I'm in a sports world because it's the week of the Super Bowl this week. Good. But you already have me. I even know what sport I want it to be. I want it to be basketball. basketball. No, <laughs> close. Yeah. I thought about baseball, but. Man, I'm hard-pressed for a good basketball movie right now. Yeah. It's been a while. Okay. I can't even tell you the last good one. But I want a story between protagonist who's up and coming. He's a talented basketball player. His dad's been the coach of his YMCA team and then his school team. And then in an up-like montage in the first 10 minutes... Something happens to dad, and dad's no longer the coach. So when protagonist goes on to college, I essentially want to do whiplash, but for the kids. Mm. He's got a new coach for the first time in his career, and it's this cantankerous tyrant Fletcher coach. And through their experiences together, he helps soften soften him the coach up a bit. He helps see the drive in him that was instilled in dad all those years. He finds a new father figure. They make it happen. They win a championship. Maybe not. Actually, no. I don't want them to win at the end of the day. because Lose in glorious fashion. Because you don't always win at the end of the day. And kids, that's a lesson that you actually need to learn. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, and you don't get a trophy. 
I actually want to call the movie. I think they exceed pretty well. All three of these films have been one word titles and I want to call it foul F O U L. That's good, dude. So yeah, basketball, teenage college age student. I think it's fitting a lot of quota that I haven't seen from Pixar before. Uh, could be a lot of fun and sad and hilarious. So like he does, doesn't need to like be saying like, then why did you fucking say so? We're not going yeah, yeah, to no. have that, but like the equivalent of that for kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Did you give any thought to the sidekick for our basketball playing guy or gal? His college roommate. Is it the ball that talks? <laughs> Wilson. Well, why not? No, that's, it's a Pixar film. It's why too, not? It's too silly. I think I'm playing more in the bounds of a little bit more realism. Um, but yeah, maybe his just like dorm buddies, like his little sidekick. No, you know what you could like, not to be too silly and not to hijack your idea. By the way, I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. You want to write it? Let's do it. Okay. I think we have two to write. Hey, if we know like Shane that came on the episode mm-hmm. of. Rise of Skywalker, he's really good at drawing. I mean, we'll write it. He'll do some sketches for us. We'll go pitch it. It could happen. Whole different thing to writing an animated spec versus what you and I normally do. But we're putting ourselves out there and can't fault us for trying. It's good, dude. Mm -hmm. If you want to personify a Pixar thing and the balls, like the idea you brought up, what if it's the ball that everybody signed on the final team that he was on that his dad coached? Yeah. Oh man, I see it. I, I see the whole film. Mm-hmm. You just lamed high concepts. That means it won't be done by Pixar. Yeah, just made the case for not high concept. Yeah, it's got to be done by some other studio. Good work, man. Yeah, love it. Well, when you told, well, you text me like this is how these this is how this goes down during the week. All me or Matt will text each other on Wednesday or like Thursday night or morning, and be like, "Here, do you think what about what do you think of this for the flight or the nightcap?" And like, you were really jazzed about this one because you know we work well in a creative space. Like, I like those what if ideas. They're so much fun to play around with. So I knew you were looking forward to this one. Yeah, but it's been a lot of fun to talk about Pixar films with you. We we'll we'll come back to it again because I'm sure, like you said, we're gonna get back to the theaters. There's gonna be a Pixar film on the docket. I don't know what it is. But then we'll we can we'll bring the Incredibles into that. We'll explain why I love it so much. We got we'll bring Bugs Life. We'll talk about yeah <laughs> trickle down economics. Whatever <laughs> you want to talk about on that episode, okay. that could be a lot of fun. But coming up next, Matt, I had to think kind of long and hard about this. And you know, we've done a few directors casts. We've done Hitchcock. We've done William Friedkin of all people. But that was a great cast. Might be one of my top three actually. If I'm being honest with you, here comes Brian De Palma finally. Oh, yeah, and then the De Palma three times. We're going to give it to you finally. Here it is, a big announcement. Actually, no. Nope. I don't think I've been this excited for a cask, like a direct, like talking about someone in a really long time. Okay. The director, David Cronenberg. What are you going to do to people's bodies? <laughs> Body horror personified. Exactly. And we're actually going to start with one of his early films from the 70s. This is pre-scanners, pre-brood. This is when he was still making films in Canada, and you've never seen it. Nope. This is going to be a blast. We're yep. going to talk about Rabid. On a Raw Watch. Raw Watch starring adult film actress Marilyn Chambers. But this is Cronenberg, I think, when he excels at filmmaking, which is taking a simple concept, which is like the changing of your bodies and turning it into a rabid zombie-like epidemic. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait till we get to film two, and I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag, but we, you and I, have maybe the best stories to tell on that episode. Oh, yeah. And then we're, it's all leading to a film that's been made, a 2020 release made by another Cronenberg. 
Yeah. And I'm excited to talk about that one too. This is going to be fun. Like this is body horror. This is why horror is so good, Matt. Whether it's ghosts or slashers or demons or body dysmorphia, you can get in the weeds and interpret that in any which way you want. And man, Cronenberg is the master at that. And a big announcement, because we're doing body horror, we have two special guests lined up, Tara Reed and Demi Moore. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true, <laughs> but they sure could be, huh? I know. But yeah, you have that coming uh, to you next week. So until next time, Matt, cheers. 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 I got to get going. I'm going to go find my spark. Oh, wait, I already found it. It's doing this podcast with you once a week. Copy, brother. Excellent. We'll see you all next week. Everybody have a great week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. And if you like what you're hearing and want to leave us some more comments or some feedback, be sure to hit us up on any of our social media platforms or at Productions at gmail.com. Soul is property of Pixar Animation Studios and Walt Disney Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Thanks. So, what do you think you'll do? How are you going to spend your life? I'm not sure. But I do know. <laughs>